This is Michael Leary with More Than Meets the IRB, a conversation about research participants and the people who study them. More Than Meets the IRB is a joint initiative of Washington University in St. Louis and public responsibility in medicine and research. Primer advances the highest ethical standards in the conduct of biomedical, behavioral, and social science research. Primer accomplishes this mission through education, membership services, professional certification, public policy initiatives, and community building. In our earlier podcast this month, we talked to Aminu Yakubu about clinical research during the Ebola crisis. During our conversation, he offered the word trust as a key concept in research ethics. This brought to mind a plenary session from the 2004 Primer Advancing Ethical Research Conference. During this presentation, Dr. Edward Gabriel shared a story about the moment he decided human research ethics and the IRB process really is all about trust. Dr. Edward Gabriel is a well-known research ethicist. At the time of this presentation, he was Executive Research Administrator for the Henry M. Jackson Foundation for the Advancement of Military Medicine and Special Assistant to the Navy Surgeon General for Research Ethics and Integrity. He was also Assistant Professor at the Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences. In this part of his presentation, Dr. Gabriel ranges widely through recent history to describe the nature of trust present in the participant-researcher relationship. Reflecting on what I wanted to share with you today, I was reflecting, what does it mean to be involved in human subject protections? And, and, and an experience happened to me in June that I wanted to share with you in order to get to where I'd like to go with you today. I was very, very honored to be asked in June to be the, one of the keynote speakers at the Office of Minority Health's conference on racial and ethnic disparities in informed consent process at Tuskegee. And I got off the plane and into a rental car and began to drive from Montgomery, Alabama out to Tuskegee and I saw this sign on the side of the road and it said, Entering Macon County. And at that moment, the hair on the back of my head stood up. And I knew that for some reason I was being transported back to an old book about being on holy ground. And I was reminded of a story. And that story about that little boy named Saul of Tarsus on a road to Damascus. And he was utterly changed whether you read it in his own words in the letter to the Galatians or you read it in somebody else's more dramatic version in the book called the Acts of the Apostles and what it occurred to me on that road is that as I was on the road to Tuskegee something was about to happen and it did and it was something that finally captured for me what is this human subjects protection stuff that grabs me every single time I read or talk or deal with someone or with a patient or with a member of an IRB. Why? And it was at that conference that it gelled for me. Because that conference got at the issues that, that the whole problem with informed consent, the problem with human subject protections, beyond all of the technical noncompliance, it really is not about technical noncompliance at all. It's about a problem with the human ability to trust and to be counted as trustworthy.
And that's when I reflected and it struck me, where do I hear those words? Where do you hear the words trust and trustworthiness? They're certainly not found necessarily in the code. You're not going to necessarily find them out of a guidance document out of a federal agency. I usually find them when I hear about the word friendship and relationships and the myriad kinds of relationships that human beings have, whether those be polite relationships or professional relationships or business relationships or schooling relationships or the intimacy of real friendship and family and marriage and committed relationships. That's where I find the words trust and trustworthiness. And what I'd like to suggest is that our understanding of human subject protections is so energized because it is grounded not in administration, not in regulation, not in compliance, but in relationship, the relationship that happens when human being being vulnerable trusts us in the act of inquiry. That is an immense place. And I was reminded in the ancient world, much like when subjects come forward, participants in research come forward and volunteer, there were folks who when they volunteered in the old Greco-Roman Empire to become soldiers, they went up and with their commander laid their hands, took their, as today title of today's uh, talk is trust and troth. They took their troth, their betrothal, their commitment, and laid their hands on, the, on an altar and gave their all. Intriguingly, in Latin, the name for that was a sacramentum. And for those of us who are part of Christian religions, we hear that word sacrament. A sacred experience. And indeed, Human subject protections is about sacred troth, the betrothal, the marriage, the commitment that really happens between the research community and those who entrust to us their lives, their privacy, their personhood. Like any other relationship, trust has to be earned. And in fact... Like any other relationship, the relationship of trust in human subject protections, I would suggest, is really best understood in defining moments. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Whenever you talk to somebody about the love of their life, about their marriage, their friendships, their families, and you invite them over to your house, and Marianne and I know this intimately well, you invite them to your house for table. People don't, you know, Italians do everything around a table. I had a great, a couple of years ago, in a former way of life, I used to be, I was in the monastery for over 28 years, and, w and actually was an ordained priest, and, um, and I, one of my last assignments, I was a campus minister, and so one Easter time, the seniors couldn't go home, they had their, uh, they had their internships going on, and so they called me up, and I was known as Father Gabe at the time. And so they called me up, oh, Gabe, can we come over and uh, watch television with you? It was like Tuesday, they couldn't go home, it was Easter time. And so they came over and they were watching. They have to understand where I was. I was in rural Wisconsin. Okay. I was in rural Wisconsin. And so, you know, all these kids are coming over and they're sitting in front of television. What are we watching? Moonstruck. And we're watching Moonstruck and there's this one little guy named Dougie. Well, I'll call him Dougie Hill. And, you know, Dougie has never been outside of Fence, Wisconsin. 
where the most excitement was when the cow got loose in the, in the cemetery. And he's watching this great flick with Cher, you know, and Olympia Dukakis, and, 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 and there, he's watching this thing, and he turns around and he goes, God, all you Italians. Yeah, kid, yeah, and I was born in Italy, too. Pronounce it right, you know. And he, and he goes, do you guys have to do everything around the table? What an amazing piece of theology. What an amazing piece of human philosophy. For human beings really do their intimacy stuff, so social scientists tell us, only around tables. And yes, when we come together to do the act of human research, we invite participants to sit around the table and just like when we have our homes and we invite folks to our homes for dinner and we imbibe not just food, but we inv imbibe story and friendship. So when we come together without realizing it subconsciously, person meets person in that act of research and there is a level of vulnerability that's found there. And so when we try to define for people, when you say, when did you meet your wife? When did you fall in love with them? We can't tell them why. We tell them stories. Human trust is always best communicated in story. And I think we have a lot of them. I'd like to suggest that in the world of human research protections, we have had defining moments that constitute our story. And let's remember that. The first thing that draws our attention is the story, the metaphor of the Holocaust during World War II. We saw the level to which the human animal can fall. We saw what human beings are capable of. We saw extraordinary hatred, bigotry, and evil unleashed upon Jewish folks, gay men, Polish Catholic priests, the political dissident, the mentally unstable gypsies, and anyone else who did not fit into the world of the Aryan race. It was intriguing that the most, the strictest code of human research ever, protections ever written was penned in 1931 by German doctors and was the law of the land during the Third Reich. A little background information. Guidelines for human experimentation were passed by the German government in 1931. These guidelines were the first modern set of laws governing the use of human subjects in research. They were cited during the Nuremberg trials after the Holocaust as a basic standard for human research ethics. After these trials, many of the concepts present in the 1931 guidelines became part of the Nuremberg Code. That may be familiar to you because it serves as the basis of our contemporary regulations and guidelines. How did people fall through the cracks because the understanding of what constitutes human? was allowed to be on a sliding scale. And that's not new. Aquinas in the 13th century posited that women were defective males, most likely created by an ill wind. Yeah. 17th century Protestant pastors in this country enjoined folks to baptize African-American slaves in case they had souls. What constitutes being human too often has been allowed to be the norm, keep sliding around. And it didn't just happen in Germany. 
in Manchuria at what was supposed to be a water purification plant at Unit 731. Prisoners of war were taken in in straw-covered cases and hidden, and there they were tied to stakes and put in the ground, and anthrax bombs were, in front, were exploded in front of them, where they were given life, tetanus in their heels. Vivisection was performed upon them. Because we needed to find the final solution, or we needed to make a better war machine. Human power, human pride, human arrogance led to the greatest example of what we could sink to problem of, yeah, that's one of our great defining moments. Human beings, for all of our being born somewhat in original innocence, we need to continue to remember what Augustine used to call, what Augustine called original sin. What we are, the evil we are capable of sinking into. That's a defining moment we need to remember. And we can never afford to forget. A second one was Tuskegee that road that I took. I was intrigued a couple of years ago, I was doing a paper on the uh, pediatric trials at the Fernald School during the Cold War experiments. And I was reading there about, and I was doing a paper on Nicholas Berdiev and moral objectification, all this other stuff, and something that jumped off the page when I was reading the Commonwealth of Massachusetts testimony about this, it jumped right off the page and it said, the Nuremberg trials, doctor's trial at Nuremberg, and the resulting Nuremberg Code never made it to the front page of a major American newspaper because folks believed that it could never happen here in America. This was a Nazi problem. It was not an American problem. It couldn't happen here because we're the guys who wear the white hats. And please notice, male and white. And yet at the very same time, that we were looking at stuff that was a Nazi problem, we're doing exactly the same thing. Tuskegee taught us as a defining moment that the problem of the lack of trust in human research is not something that happened over there. It wasn't a Nazi problem. It wasn't a totalitarian problem. It reminded us in 1972, and I find it intriguing. In 72, Gene Heller breaks the news. And the state gets embarrassed by it and finally passes the National Research Act that sets up Belmont. We had to be embarrassed into understanding that the problem of the lack of the, the violation of trust didn't happen there. It happened here. It was in our midst. The exploitation that Alan Brandt talks about in that landmark article on racism and research. The exploitation of black men in Tuskegee was not just about the physical. It was physical. It was medical. It was sexual. It was economic. It was, it was systemic degradation and exploitation. And that didn't happen in Germany. It happened here in the United States and done by the public health service. The problem of a lack of trust was not out there. It's here in our midst. But that sets us up for a third defining moment that we have to remember in this relationship. And that's the legacy of Jesse Gelsinger and Ellen Roche. It didn't just happen back then, 1974, when the first code of federal regulations, federal policy comes out. It didn't stop it. We all know the stories. Jesse lost his life 
and Ellen lost hers. And yes, there's some folks that would say, yeah, but you know, administratively, the IRB did its job. They checked off the right boxes, and two people still died. Because the problem is not something that happened back then, it's still happening now. It happens today. Our third, these defining moments remind us that human beings, we are, there are parts of our world that are so enamored of the commercialism of produce or perish that our commitment in trust to protect or perish is too often eroded. And it didn't happen back then, and it didn't happen over there. It happens now and here. This has been More Than Meets the IRB. Thank you for joining us. We will see you next time.